Well, good morning. On this uh, day, one week ahead of our Christmas celebration. Can you believe it? It is it's almost here. Now, we, what we've been doing last week and this week is to pause in our study of John's Gospel in order to look at a couple of places in preparation for our celebration of, of the Christmas holiday. Um, and these are two places, I mentioned this last week, that we might not often look at as we're uh, leading up to Christmas, but for two different reasons. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 1 and that genealogy, and that's a passage we might not often go to in this way because, well, it's a genealogy, and we just don't tend to do that. Uh, this morning, I'll have you open to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 25 to 35 in our preparation for Christmas. And this one might be unusual to do that with because, as you'll see, it's describing events that happen after Jesus' birth. So we're actually going past his birth in order to prepare ourselves to remember his birth. But this passage is a helpful one for us to consider because this is the place where a man named Simeon prophesies about the significance of this child's arrival on the earth. And considering what we hear here can really serve us the same purpose that was served last week, my hope is that we will further sharpen our thinking and the thinking that we can have when we think about what we're celebrating at the Nativity. So we'll begin here by, by hearing the text. And as I read, you may be able to hear in this the division that will sort of structure our time around here. We're going to hear a couple of different blessings that Simeon gives. The first is his blessing to God in verses 28 to 32. And the second is his blessing to Mary and Joseph in verses 34 and 35. So let's read together. I'll be reading Luke 2 verses 25 to 35 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
We learn about who this man is in verses 25 and 26. This is a man from Jerusalem. His name is Simeon. The text calls him righteous and devout. This is already now the third person in Luke's gospel who's called righteous. Righteous and devout man of Jerusalem. And there are two things that are emphasized about him in verse 25. Do you see these there? One is that it says he has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the other thing that's emphasized is that the Holy Spirit, it says, is upon him. Now, we might start this morning by thinking about those two descriptions about this man and how they're connected. This is a man who has known for some time that something is coming. It says he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, how did he come to that conclusion? That there is a consolation of Israel coming that he ought to be waiting for. Well, it's told us that he is a righteous and devout man. This is a man who has been reading his Bible with eyes of faith, which means he's read the promises given through Isaiah. He has understood the promises in Isaiah. And here's the kicker. He has believed them. What he's seen promised in God's word, he has believed. And what do you do with promises about something that's coming that is good news that you believe? What do you do with those things? Well, what you do is you get excited about them because you're actually anticipating that this thing is sure to come. So you get excited. You you anticipate. And what we learn here is that that's how Simeon has been living. It doesn't tell us how long, but it seems to be describing a long period of time. He is living in anticipation of the coming of the consolation of Israel. I imagine that that hopeful expectation had been in place for him for some time, probably, before the Holy Spirit came upon him in this way that's described to us in verse 25. We remember the context that we're hearing here. This is still Old Covenant context. The cross has not happened. Jesus has not died and ascended and gone to heaven and sent the Spirit in the way that he is promising and that the disciples will wait for. All we hear here is that what's happening with Simeon is what we see happen many times in the Old Testament in distinct particular ways. The Holy Spirit comes upon an individual for a particular purpose and a particular time. With Simeon, it doesn't tell us very much of anything about this, except that that was the case for him. So how long has this been the case? How long is is the Holy Spirit upon him like this? It doesn't tell us. How has the Spirit been using Simeon, perhaps? Has he been operating a, a prophetic teaching ministry? It doesn't tell us anything about that. The only consequences that at least we're told of, of the Spirit being upon this man all center around a particular prophetic declaration concerning the baby Jesus. It's what we read about in verses 26 to 28, and we actually hear of three things that the Spirit does uh, with Simeon, one in each verse. One is verse 26, we read there, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is something the Holy Spirit had revealed to him, that he could expect, he could anticipate, that before he dies, he will see, he will get to see the thing that he has been waiting for and eagerly anticipating. 
Notice the Spirit's work in verse 27. Verse 27 says, He came in the Spirit into the temple. That doesn't mean that He didn't come bodily into the temple. He did come bodily into the temple. It means that the Holy Spirit is the one who prompted and led him to the temple in exactly the right time. So that when Mary and Joseph show up with the baby, there's not a miss here. The Holy Spirit is directing him deliberately so that he will encounter them on that day when he comes to the temple. And then you see in verse 28, when he sees the baby... He is made aware of the significance. Mary and Joseph and this eight-day-old are walking past crowds, and there's no light from heaven. No one is stopping and turning and gaping. They're just another couple with another baby to present. But when Simeon enters the temple and sees them, he is made aware of who he's looking at. We read there, When the parents brought in the child Jesus, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, And it's only there that we come to the focus of our time together this morning. Because what we're concerned with in particular this morning is how Simeon's words here enhance our celebration of Jesus' birth. What is it that we see here that could prepare and sharpen us? And what we're going to see is that each of his two blessings, again, his blessing to God, his blessing to Mary and Joseph, each of them provide their own chance for our celebration of Christ's birth to be increased. And here they are in short. Number one, his praise to God from verses 28 to 32 give the opportunity for us to increase our sense of peace as we peer in our mind's eye into that manger. His praise to God will increase our sense of peace. And then secondly, in verses 34 and 35, his words to Mary will increase our sobriety in the whole occasion. When I say sobriety, I'm thinking about a meditative, sober-mindedness that is a proper part of our celebration of Jesus' birth. Joy and celebration and gladness are very much the right way to celebrate Christmas. We're celebrating the greatest gift that has ever come into this world. But Simeon is going to make clear that there is a proper element of sobriety as we reflect during this season. These are the two things that I hope we'll see as we listen to Simeon's prophecies here. Let's start with what we find in verses 28 to 32. Simeon starts here by praising God because God's promise to him has now been fulfilled. He has seen the Lord's Christ, as verse 26 put it. And look at what he says in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen what you promised they would see. Now, how does he characterize the thing that God promised he would see. The first thing we hear him say is this. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Are you ever jealous of people who have the ability to take an idea and boil it down to just that right sometimes even single word, they just have that capability to just come right to it. 
it's not an easy thing. It's not a gift that everybody has. We had to, at the men's retreat this year, we were taught a game that had us trying to do that, to take a phrase or an idea at one point and boil it down to one. We had one word we had to try to pick. It is not easy. And Simeon is being led by the Spirit as he speaks here. And what he does is he boils this down to one word. He says, when, I'm, when I hold this baby and I look into his face, I am staring at God's salvation. That's what I'm staring at. It's not a way that I would maybe normally do this, but my goodness, it, it is such a great articulation of the Bible's teaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When I think about that understanding, I wouldn't normally come here to these words of Simeon's. But he finds it an accurate thing to say, to equate, my eyes have seen Mary's son with my eyes have seen God's salvation. He just equates the two things. That's what I'm looking at here. And you might think with me about what that does for us. For example, when we have seasons, this, is, this characterizes us when the Lord was bringing us to himself in conversion, when we were coming to know Christ. But it comes in other seasons at points as well. When, when the wrestling comes that God puts in our hearts as we sense rightly the guilt of our sin, you know what that wrestling feels like? We sense the danger of rebellion against God. There's a mourning, there's a weight. And the question is, because in light of what Simeon is saying here, what is a believing response to those kinds of experiences? As I am aware of my, my, my guilt before a holy God, the heinousness of sin, what's a believing response to that? What Simeon's words here tell us is that a believing response is very far from rolling up my sleeves in order to get to work, fixing a problem. Simeon's words here would tell us that a believing response in those moments is instead to grab hold of a person, a particular person. We could even bring in here the last thing we saw in John's gospel here a few weeks ago. This is why the believing response to God's promises is to receive Jesus, to receive him, to see him for who he is, and to hear his words and receive his words. That's saving faith. Saving faith is a receiving act. It's not a working act. And it is a receiving because when Simeon looks at this baby, what he is seeing is he is seeing God's salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. He gives us several descriptions of this salvation then. Verse 31, he says, God has prepared it in the presence of all peoples. Isn't it noticeable that the first thing Simeon points to, first thing he points out is something about the global significance of this child. And it really sounds a lot like, there's no way to know if he's doing it intentionally or not, but it sounds a lot like one of the things that Chance just read to us in Isaiah 52, 
That's right before the famous Isaiah 53 chapter, right? About the suffering servant. The chapter that starts out with those words, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Is anybody seeing this? But listen to what he says in Isaiah 52.10. He said this, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Simeon says here, my eyes have seen your salvation, a salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. He's come, and he's not hidden himself. He's right here. Now that statement, though, in verse 31, it's valuable in and of itself, but it seems to me that it serves especially as a setup for verse 32. Because he's speaking of the sight before all peoples, and then in verse 32, he does two things. Do you notice that? So he's saying here, my eyes have seen your salvation, and it's a salvation you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. And that verb prepared just means to, to cause, to be ready. This is the fullness of time, and God in his perfect timing has caused now to come and be ready, his salvation on display. His means of salvation has now been revealed by his eternal plan and purpose, and it's happening before all peoples, you see how that leads us into verse 32. What is this salvation that's been on display for all peoples? Well, it's two things according to Simeon's prophecy. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and it's a light for glory to your people Israel. This is an interesting thing for him to say. It could create some questions for us. Questions maybe like this. What does he mean when he calls Jesus light for revelation to the Gentiles? Isn't it true for Jews as well? What is his point in singling out the Gentiles in that way? A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And while we're at it, what about the Jews? If he is the Savior offered to all, how can Simeon talk about glory in a specific way for Israel here? He's clearly making some kind of a point in distinguishing like this. And what we find, if you think about what's happening here, is Simeon is expressing the new things that are happening because Jesus has now come into the world eight days before this. He is emphasizing what has changed now that this Messiah has arrived. So think of the first statement about Gentiles, for example. And you can think about uh, what we saw in the month of November about the mystery of Christ that, wind, that Paul winds up describing here. There is news about God's salvation and even accessibility to that news and that reality that has now come to the Gentiles now that the Christ has come. That is new in a way that it is not new for the Jews. The very fact that you have among the Jews... Someone like Simeon waiting for Jesus' arrival tells you that there is something here that is not new for the Jews, that is new for the rest of the world. And that newness has to do with a knowledge of God's plans that could lead to an anticipation. So, for example, Romans chapter 3 starts by asking a question. What advantage has the Jew? And Paul's answer isn't, no advantage. 
His answer is, much in every way. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. There is information, there is revelation that the Jews have long had that the the Gentiles haven't. And Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of the revelation the Jews had already received. But his arrival, in fact, constitutes for the Gentiles a light for revelation. The gospel is about to go forth, news of Jesus, uh, the very very interaction and appearance of Christ to non-Jews. This is all about to begin. There is revelation, information about God's plan of salvation that is about to go out to the nations that up to now the Jews have possessed. So in this way, Christ's coming is in fact a light for revelation to the Gentiles in a unique way. Now, what about the Jews? What's new for the Jews in Christ's arrival? They have had revelation of a coming light that they have at least theoretically been waiting for. They've been waiting for his coming. Some have been waiting. And the promise they've been waiting for involves wording like what we find in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. Listen to how it's worded there. It says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. They know that the Messiah's coming entails the arrival of a long-awaited vindication of the people of God. Now, they may not understand how that is going to work out. They may not understand the way in which it will involve nations outside of the physical borders of Israel coming in and these sorts of things. But nevertheless, it is true that his coming means glory to God's people Israel. Their hope of not just rescue of any kind, but of vindication. They've been counting on believing in the promises of their God that decade after decade, have not been coming to pass. The the arrival of this Messiah means glory for God's people. Now, what I want us to do then is to take what what we're seeing here in verses 28 to 32 and consider it in terms of the nativity. What are we about to celebrate here in seven days in the arrival of this one that Simeon is holding in his arms? What we're finding here is that we're celebrating the very act of God reaching out with an offer of salvation to every one of us. At Jesus' birth, we see that God truly wills for us to know him. Because in Christ, he has made himself known to us. He has revealed himself to us. This one who has come is himself our peace. Here's what that means, my friends. Our peace did not reach us when we climbed the highest height and found it. That is not how we have found peace. Our peace came down to us. Our peace is not an object or an accomplishment. It's not something that we must attain. Our peace is a person who himself has done the necessary work. 
so that our look into that manger reveals more than just joyful, festive celebration in general. It reveals, in fact, the deepest foundations of a peace that cannot be taken from us because it was not attained by us. It was sent to us. If the coming of Christ to earth is, in fact, the coming of our very peace with God, then my peace is something that is out of reach for me to lose or to be taken from me. It is something that has been given. Now, there's more for us to say about that at the end, but let's add into it what we find in verses 34 and 35, coming to Simeon's blessing to Mary and Joseph. And let's hear these again. Look at verse 34. So they have been marveling in verse 33 at what Simeon has said. Not because they were expecting Jesus to be just a normal baby. They've heard much already, haven't they? But the global emphasis that Simeon has just declared is very different from what they heard Gabriel tell Mary in chapter 1. They've learned things, and they're amazed at what they've seen Simeon declare. Look now at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's helpful how this is set apart from the first statements, because it helps us to notice that in the first things he was saying, he wasn't even addressing Mary and Joseph, was he? He took the baby, and he doesn't speak to the parents. He is addressing God in what we've already seen. He's praising God. But now he turns to Mary and Joseph. He prays for God's blessing on them, and he gives them these words, and he gives them in particular to Mary. They're words that are recorded for us, and because they are prophecy from God, they benefit far beyond Mary and Joseph. But we need to think about the question this morning, why does he say this to Mary in particular? And I want us to see that while this is prophecy, right, Simeon cannot know this, except by revelation from the Holy Spirit. I want us to see that one of the things God is doing in giving this word to Mary is he's using Simeon to gently prepare Jesus' mother for the hard results that her son is going to produce. Leon Morris writes that, he says, salvation will be purchased at heavy cost. And Simeon somberly records this. He tells her two things here, or we could organize them into two. The first is this. He tells her, your child has been placed, positioned by God. He says, for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For the fall and rising of many in Israel. This leads us to a a tricky question, an interpretive question here that that we really wrestle with, and there's a lot of difference of of opinion. Is he meaning to describe one group of people or two groups of people when he says that? And really both are possible. The good news is they both arrive at the same main point. But it's tricky. He could be talking about one group of people with this fall and rise. And if he's doing that, his point would be that Jesus has been positioned for some, he says many in Israel, so that what will happen with them is they will fall 
Jesus will lead to a great humbling for many, a great bringing down that then is accompanied with a rise. Through Jesus, many will fall and rise with him. You see how that could be describing just one group of people, the same people falling and rising. It could also be describing two groups of people and just saying to us that Jesus is going to be a great divide in Israel. People are either going to fall or rise depending on their reaction to Jesus. You see the point of both of those possibilities. They're both real possibilities. I've been surprised. I came into this week, I think, assuming it was the second that he's talking about two groups. And at this moment, at 11.35 on a Sunday, I think I actually lean more toward the first, that he's describing one group there. And that would just be because, I could be wrong, but what lends itself that way is the way he words this in particular. It seems like he's intending this to be one group of people uh, and therefore a positive option. Here's what Jesus has been positioned for. Some will fall and rise with him. Some will, instead of that, crash face first into this sign of him instead. So if that's what he's doing, he's setting the two up as a positive and a negative outcome. This child is appointed as a fall and rising of many or as a sign that's going to be opposed. As I said, it could just be describing two groups, though, in verse 34. And if it's doing that, then it's even easier, isn't it? The point of all of it, then, is simply because of Jesus, there is going to be signs that must be taken. There is going to be division as a result. And Jesus is the center point of that division. He is the great divide. Now, let's skip over the... There's a parenthesis that starts verse 35. I think most verses, versions have it as a, in a parenthesis. Skip that for a moment. We'll come back to it. Because this thought that he's giving in verse 34 about what Jesus is serving to be in Israel, that thought is finished in verse 35. You see what he's saying. Jesus has been specially positioned, placed, to serve as this means of distinction in the visible sphere to be, to, be, um, to be born out. He says, verse 35, so that, right, result. What's going to be the result of this? He says, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is an amazing thing for him to say is going to happen because of this baby, Jesus, who has come into the world. For him to talk about the thoughts of our heart being revealed. What does the Bible say about your heart? Are those the places you go for, for feel-good, lift-up, encouraging words to go to where the Bible describes your heart to you? It's not, is it? It's not at all. Who can look at anyone else and discern someone else's heart? And the answer in this room is none of us can. Who can even know their own heart? And the answer in Scripture is None of us can. And we have statements like Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Disney has taught our children for decades, follow your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What is the thing in the end, then, that is going to reveal the heart of man? 
I can't see it. You can't see it. What's going to reveal the hearts of mankind? Simeon takes this baby, the baby Jesus, in his arms and says, God has brought this child into the world and set him up as a standard. This baby is a great signpost of revelation, and our response to him is the revealing of our heart. It's what it is. Who are you really before your God? God looks and sees the heart. He knows us. So who are you? Being by nature super sweet or irritable, mild or fiery, articulate or tongue-tied, none of that does us any good in revealing what God sees in our heart. But this does. What does the heart do? Excuse me. What does the heart do when faced with the sights and sounds of Jesus? And you see Simeon says here, Mary, your son's very existence reveals the hearts of all mankind. And there's some bad news. To that, to that, for that very reason, to a very large extent, that is not going to be pretty. That's all one big thing that he says to Mary here. The second one comes off of that, even though it blesses and informs us, we find it's even more personal for Mary. The second thing that he tells her is what we've skipped over in that parenthesis of verse 35. What he tells her is the personal cost of this divide will be great. How bad is this going to get before the end, Simeon? And what he tells her in verse 35 is he says, a sword will pierce through your own heart also. That is a very well-translated sentence. He he words this very deliberately to make the point that he is not just telling her about difficulty in her son's life or difficulty in other people's lives. That's there. You can see it in the rise and fall of many. You can see it in the opposition. But he's describing difficulty that is going to be for her soul-crushing. Now, if you're thinking that, that this is a little heavy for us to be focusing on when we're in the Christmas season, just remember that, that they've come to the temple at the eight-day mark of Jesus' life. So it's actually kind of perfect. Well, we've got some good symmetry going on here. It's seven days before his birth for us. It's eight days after his birth for Mary. And the point is, Mary and Joseph knew from his baby days that this was going to be the hardest of roads. He's warned them of this. We feel confident that he directs his words to Mary in particular because Joseph is going to be spared much of this. It seems that he's already died by the time the cross comes. She is alone. She's entrusted then to a disciple. He's not going to have to walk through the deepest of turmoil like Mary. 
And so God, in his kindness, is preparing her heart for what she is going to face. And she knew from then that this was going to be the hardest of roads. But what else did she know? She knew of God's absolute sovereignty over every step of what was happening and what was coming. They knew that God had a purpose in what he was doing. Purposes we can see even in the little bit we've read here. Purposes of salvation, verse 30. Revelation, verse 32. Glory, verse 32. And let's take this then and do what we did with the first part of our passage. The question that we're asking this morning is, what are we seeing here in light of Simeon's words that impact us, that enhance what we see when we look into the manger? And I would suggest to you that verses 34 and 35 give us two things. They are two, but one produces the other, so they're going to be connected. Here's the first thing that this does for us. It shows us something. We see something here that Christ himself was not unclear about. We're reminded to not content ourselves with admiring the sweet little baby, but instead to soberly appreciate that this child, in his coming into the world, in fact stands as the great dividing point of all mankind. Have you seen that? And the preparatory news that Simeon is giving here. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is to be opposed. And the result will be that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And that's what he's done from the beginning. One of the first things that happens to this child, wrapped in swaddling cloths, is that men from the east show up and bow down and worship him. I mean, they're just consequences of his presence on earth by virtue of his very nature. What he does by consequence is to draw up dividing lines. And if that sounds divisive, of course it's divisive. That is, in fact, the whole point. The defining element in life for each and every one of us was always destined to be, am I with Jesus or against him? Statements like those bring some of Christ's own statements to mind, don't they? Luke eleven fourteen, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Or his words in Matthew 10, 34 and following, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. There's a great Christmas bumper sticker for us to put on our Cars. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Simeon's words about Jesus here aren't just true about him in some vicarious 
way. The dividing line that Simeon's describing is a line that Christ has brought intentionally. Yes, as an inevitability because of who he is, but also explicitly in his claim to be Lord and God. So the first thing that we're saying that this brings or adds to our thoughts at Christmas is to look at that manger and recognize that his birth has forced the choosing of sides. While his birth is joyous and worthy of the festival of it, the celebration that we enjoy, nevertheless, it entails a reminder that because he has come, the whole human race will be organized into two groups, one on his right, one on his left, in the end, and where will I stand in that day? This is what the birth of Jesus screams to us. That may be the first thing that verses 34 and 35 add to our consideration this Christmas. But that then produces a second, I would say. That realization produces the effect for us that Simeon's words were intended to have for Mary, which is that our consideration of that purpose of his coming becomes all on its own. It becomes a means for our resolve as Christians to be strengthened. He's not telling her this to upset her. He's telling her this to help her prepare for where she is going to go. John Calvin wrote these words about what Simeon said to Mary here. He said, this warning should have the power to strengthen the mind of Mary in case grief overcame her when it came to that bitterest conflict which was to be encountered. The effect here on us can be to have our allegiances more firmly fixed in our minds. And even to use the annual celebration of this festival to that end. There are many loved ones that God has gifted us in this life, aren't there? There are many in this world for whom we would gladly die. Family members, dear friends. And yet in each and every one of those cases, my ability to walk arm in arm beside them is contingent. You know what contingent means? Contingent means conditional. It means it depends. It depends on something else. I am with you. I will follow you. I will go with you to the ends of the earth, my friend, my brother, my son. But if you would walk away from the Lord, I will always love you, but I will not be able to follow you there. There are potential things, conditions in this world that could divide us. And I pray it would never be, but there are those things. And those things are these. I can never love and serve you in a way that constitutes a hating and disobeying of my Lord Jesus Christ. My allegiance to you is contingent. My allegiance to him is not contingent upon anything. Simeon's words do for Mary what they can do for us. They give her the opportunity to prepare herself. And for Mary, it's really kind of a weird thing that she needs preparing for. 
weird in a way that's not weird for us. Because for Mary, the competition is going to be between her allegiance to Jesus, her son, and her allegiance to Jesus, her savior. That's odd, isn't it? Mary, what's coming is going to break your heart as you weep for your son. But you must not work to prevent this. You must not resent this. You must choose love for Jesus, your Savior, above love for Jesus, your Son. And we saw it a long time ago in John 2 at the water to wine miracle that Jesus has to distance himself from his mother as he's leading her to stop viewing him as her son and start viewing him as her Savior, the Savior who has come into the world. My friends, as God's word does these things, he's working in us. He is loving us by leading us to sharpen our sense of what we see in that manger. The inescapable sense that in that manger lay an unstoppable force, an immovable object, the object around which everything else is going to move, one way or the other. Because of what he is, I can come to the Christmas season annually, look down into that manger in my mind, and say to him who lies there, you, you and you alone, you and you alone. We can echo the words of Psalm 86 as a settled conviction because of who Christ is. This becomes our prayer. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. This is our prayer as the children of God. And may God more tightly bind our hearts to himself this Christmas. Because he is our king, the calling we're talking about is our sober duty. Because he is our friend, our greatest treasure, our hope and rest. Because he is our peace because he is our help and shield, because of those things, this calling is also our greatest joy. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are gathered this morning as those who have received grace upon grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. We are not a group who have outsmarted or outperformed. We are those who have been shown mercy by our Savior. We thank you for these words of yours that you have guarded and delivered to us by your Spirit. Words that have been our food this morning. Help us, Lord to respond in this Christmas season by mixing our joy and celebration 
with very deliberate resting in peace. A certain peace that is not ours because we attained it, but that has come to us in your Son. And Father, lead us to mix our joy and celebration with moments of very sober meditation because we know this, that Jesus' birth has forced the entire world to a decision. With him or against him, that's the decision. And Father, we ask you as your children for courage and strength in the times when that decision costs us. We acknowledge, Lord, we know that we have brothers and sisters right here beside us who have paid dear, dear costs, even in recent years, because of their allegiance to your Son above all others. And Lord, our prayer is that you would comfort them. Comfort them with the assurance that you see, that you are honored and pleased. Comfort them with the assurance that not one of those steps of faithfulness is a thing that we will regret. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, Father. We pray all of this as your people together in Jesus' name. Amen.